Good morning. Um, I'm going to read this amazing passage of scripture before the sermon today. And I have a challenge for you. I was going to say children, but I think everybody should do this. I'll give you a couple of minutes or a minute to get, if you want, your um, phone out to count or a piece of paper and a little uh, pencil or something just to mark, tally some words. And here's the word I want you to see how many times you hear it. The word love. Okay? So however you want to keep count, you're going to need more than just your fingers. And I'm reading from the um, Phillips translation of the New Testament. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. Okay, here we go. To you whom I love, I say, let us go on loving one another, for love comes from God. Every man who truly loves is God's son and has some knowledge of him. But the man who does not love cannot know him at all, for God is love. To us, the greatest demonstration of God's love for us has been his sending his only son into the world to give us life through him. We see real love, not in the fact that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to make personal atonement for our sins. If God loved us as much as that, surely we in our turn should love one another. It is true that no human being has ever had a direct vision of God. Yet, if we love one another, God does actually live within us, and his love grows in us toward perfection. And as I wrote above, the guarantee of our living in him and his living in us is in the share of his own spirit, which he gives. We ourselves are eyewitnesses, able and willing to testify to the fact that God did send the Son to save the world. Everyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God finds that God lives in him, and he lives in God. So we've come to know and trust the love God has for us. God is love. And the man whose life is lived in love does, in fact, live in God. And God does, in fact, live in him. So our love for him grows more and more filling us with complete confidence for the day when he shall judge all men. For we realize that our life in this world is actually his life lived in us. Love contains no fear. Indeed, fully developed love expels every particle of fear, For fear always contains some of the torture of feeling guilty. 
This means that the man who lives in fear has not yet had his love perfected. Yes, we love him because he first loved us. If a man says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love the brother before his eyes. How can he love the one beyond his sight? And in any case, it is his explicit command that the one who loves God must love his brother too. The word of the Lord. I counted 28. Is that did anybody else? Was that, uh, okay, all right. A few of us. All right. <clears throat> that may be confirmation bias, but I, I feel good about that number. Oh. Well, good morning to everybody. I'm Phil Bryan, and I have no clue why they let me up here, truthfully. Um, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we come before you and uh, I ask, well, it'd be foolish not to ask that you would uh, fill this room with your love. How about that? Let's do that. I pray that your word will be clear to us, informed by your spirit, free of any tarnish of untruth from me. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, <clears throat> every, every um, I've known I'm, I've been preaching on this passage for a while, and I, I don't know about anybody, I have this song that I learned as a child. Do you know this one? It's kind of got a little Latin groove going, okay? Think like Girl from Ipanema, but it, you know, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. You know, like, oh, no, no. Please. I learned that song as a kid somewhere. I don't know where I learned it, but that has been rolling around. Anybody else know that one? Oh, good. Okay, I'm not a complete weirdo. All right. I also have had the round, you know. Behold what manner of love the fire. How many know that? That one, and of course, that one never stops. Okay? So, I mean, I love that it's scripture, but I'm really ready for a different earworm. Okay? It's been about six weeks, and I've just got First John pounding around in my head. So maybe today I'll put it to bed. Maybe you've noticed that John's a little repetitive. Thank you, Carrie Jane. Anybody notice this about First John? 
I, I, in preparing for this, um, it was kind of hard because I was looking at this and I thought, okay, well, there's this, well, Mike Stroh talked about that last week. Okay. Well, what, it, oh, okay. Trabin did that one a couple weeks ago. Shoot. Okay. Um, if I get, oh, no, we got it. Well, okay. There is a new piece this week. But it's funny because part of what's going on is how John structured the book. So I'm not going to concentrate on every piece this week because, frankly, some of them are repeating what we've seen before. I'm going to try to zoom in on one particular section that's sort of new this week. But, but what we've seen before is very much on purpose because what John's doing, and it's, again, as an English teacher, I nerded out a little bit as I was preparing because it's a really interesting structural device he uses because he sort of hopscotches. And what happens by hopscotching, he sort of, he'll introduce an idea, then he'll go to another idea, then he'll kind of pick up the first idea, and then he'll sort of pick up another, and he writes in these chunks. And, but what happens is there ends up being this connective tissue running through all the chunks. But there is a danger to these chunks. And that danger, perhaps you've noticed this too, is that First John is a great book if you want to weaponize a particular few lines of Scripture. Have you noticed this? Um, I don't know, growing up, I always found 1 John a very difficult book. Because one minute he's like, everybody sins, don't worry about it, that's why you can ask forgiveness. And then like 10 verses later, he's like, if you sin, the love of God is not in you and you're the Antichrist. You're like, whoa, which, wh hold on, what's going on here? And you kind of get whiplash with John. You kind of go back and forth and you say, what, which is it? Am I, am I saved or not? I'm not sure if I'm his beloved child or if I'm like straight from the pit of hell. And, and I think some of this comes down to um, the fact that John is tapping into something that's true of the Christian life, and that is that we live in tension. I mean, when you woke up this morning, did you say, Lord, I just hope I have a day full of tension? Anybody pray that prayer? Just give me a day full of tension. Well, you didn't need to because you're going to get it anyhow. Yeah, there's the tension of, that you get in life, but there's a tension. Think about all the ways in which we live in two worlds, right? I'm a new creation, and yet somehow I'm still having to be put to death all day long. I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm a sojourner and an ambassador here on the earth. I'm to be in the world, but not of the world, right? The kingdom is already, but not yet. I, well, well, See, we exist in two realms, and it's complicated that way. And we have these opposing forces pushing at us. And it can create some sort of cognitive dissonance. But I, I want today to try to move us to the place that I think John was going in this particular section. And that's, if I may jump the shark, no fear. No fear. So, if you look at the first couple of verses the one I just butchered so badly in my song. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, and God is love. Like that, that's a great one, right? That's the reason they write songs like that. You notice they don't write the songs about, if you don't love, you're the Antichrist. Like that one, don't, don't have that one. This one sells tickets, right? We like this song. It's catchy. It's nice. It makes me feel good. And, 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 and yet there's even a danger here, right? Because if I just cherry-pick these two verses, what am I saying? Well, everybody who loves must be a Christian, right? Well, that becomes problematic, doesn't it? You ever met somebody who says, oh, well, I don't go in for the whole Jesus thing, but they're really loving, kind, gracious people? You know, those people exist. 
But what's funny is then he's going to jump down a little bit later. Look down at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And that's really an echo of verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is coming to the flesh is from God. Well, which is it? Do I have to love or do I have to confess? Mm-hmm. You see, part of what John's getting at and the reason he breaks these chunks up but then ties them back together is you don't have one without the other, everybody. If you have perfect theology, think about Romans, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, what am I? Noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Ouch. So if you confess but don't have love, guess what? Something's broken. If you have love but you say, ah, I don't buy the whole Jesus thing, you've got a problem. It should be both. We should be confessing that Jesus is the Christ and we should be loving anything we can get our hands on. That's really the recipe here. So John says, beloved, love one another. And by the way, that one shouldn't come as a shock. Like, is anybody caught off guard that the Bible says, love your neighbor, love one another? Like, that feels pretty bedrock to me. If you're here like, doggone it, I'm supposed to love people. You've got the wrong religion. This is kind of the one right here. This is a centerpiece. It's a big ticket item. Love people. So he says, love one another. And then he, that, verses 7 and 8, tie down to 12 and 13. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. You see how, see how he hopscotches? Because in between that, what do we have? 9 through 11. What does 9 through 11 tell us? Well, it tells you the original why behind our love. Why should I love you? I don't even like you. Why should I? He says, well, glad you asked. Because you're the recipient of the greatest love in all of time and space. You're the recipient of the greatest love because God loved you first. He says it isn't that we loved God, it's that he loved us. And he gave his son a propitiation for our sins as a substitute to carry the weight I deservedly should have carried. He took it and said, I'll take it from you. He who knew no sin became sin for me. And he says, if there's no better reason to love than that, you don't need anything else. And, and the thing is, we know we have to be reminded of this, don't we? Remember the parable about the guy who gets forgiven a giant debt? And then turns around and goes out to the guy who owes him a couple bucks. And instead of saying, man, I've been forgiven this debt, he's like, I want my two dollars. Like, it, it, you know, all of this stuff in here, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to be reminded to abide? It just happened. Like, you, you know, you, you, you ask God to be your Savior, you pray or whatever, you know, the, I, I get all hung up on these invite Jesus into your heart conversations. But, but you put your faith in Jesus and then wouldn't it be great if you suddenly like, Bruh? I'm abiding and loving. I don't know about you, though. I'm in tune with the first part of the book where it's like, if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. Mm-hmm. I have to be reminded to abide. And you think about it, that makes sense, too. Think about the relationships you have. I've been married 25 years. 
And when I first got married, man, abiding was easy. I was the king of romance. Then I had children. And I love them, and I would die for them, but I wish they would leave sometimes. You know, you kind of find yourself going, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just chauffeurs and event planners and chefs and prison wardens. And you're looking at this person who's the love of your life, the other half of your soul, going, I'll do paper, rock, scissors to see who has to do dinner. Just... Uh... You're going to have to go, we need to go on a, I need to abide a little bit. I need to spend some time with you. And we need to remind ourselves that we love each other. We know we need to abide. We just forget to do it. We know we need to love people. Well, we forget to do it. So John's just reminding you. He's just reminding you. This is, this, again, none of this should come as a surprise. This is just standard operating procedure if you're following Jesus. This is it. And so <clears throat> we come up to the part that I think is sort of new today, and that's in verse 16. I want to camp out here for a minute. Now, in this section, John sort of lays out a new piece, a new chunk for us to look at. He says, we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, I want you to notice this structure. I, I, again, I'm an English teacher by, by day, and so I get, kind of, I get kind of excited over what I see as cool structure. And it's one thing for a single author to write a book and have something that happens in chapter 2, and then they do a callback in chapter 27, and you think, oh my gosh, he's so good. But for the Holy Spirit to take a bunch of different human authors over thousands of years and to take it all and still do callbacks to other things, you go, oh, he's pretty good. <laughs> because when I read this passage, verse 16, we've come to know and have believed. You notice that those are separated. We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides so I want you to, if you're, if you're into writing in your Bible or highlighting in your phone or whatever it is, do know, believed, and abide. Now, as I read this, I couldn't help but think of Romans 6, where Paul is talking, and Paul says, he says, do you not know that you have been crucified into Christ's death and resurrection? Do you not know? And then later in the passage, he says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And then further on, he says, don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather as instruments of righteousness. In Paul, it's no consider, present. In John, it's no believe, abide. But what you have is you have this idea that first got to get it through my thick skull to the grape in there. But then it has to go somewhere else, doesn't it? Because I have things that I intellectually understand that don't translate to belief and action. You have any of those? I've told this story before. I was decades into life before I was willing to float on my back in a pool. I remember it was the one thing, you know, when I was a kid taking swimming lessons and you had your little checklist at the end and you're like, you had to hold your breath underwater, you have to swim across the pool and back, you have to be able to jump off. Blah, blah, blah. The one thing I always failed on, I still managed to get a passing grade. 
but I failed on floating on my back because they're like, just lean back. I'm like, no. They're like, no, trust us, the water will hold you up. And I'm like, it's, no, it won't. And then they explained the physics of it to me. And I was like, I hear you. I'm just still not going to lean back. And it was decades before I was willing to go, you know what? I think in my 30s, I really should do this. I know. I know. It's preposterous. Some of you are like, this guy needs psychological help of a scale that I can't even imagine. Truth. But I knew it was true. I just couldn't let myself go. I didn't, it didn't switch into belief and then from belief into action. No consider present. No believe abide. What it comes down to is you get it in here, then you got to get it in here, and then it needs to show up in how you act. It needs to show up and, and translate into your interactions in the world. Again, don't just confess that Jesus is the Christ. Love people. It's got to move that way. It's got to go from the head to the heart to the hands, right? And what's great about this is, look at this. The one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. If I were to ask you, would you like to abide in God and have him abide in you? You're going to say, yes, I'd like a little slice of that? Anybody going to go, no, no. (laughs) You might be thinking it. Because beware, when God shows up, he, he starts rearranging furniture and knocking out walls. He is a pesky roommate. But, but intellectually, we say, yeah, yeah, I want to abide in God and I want God to abide in me. Okay, well, then abide in love. And of course, later he's going to say, and you know what? You know what you need to start with? See, you think loving the person next to you is hard. But if you can't love the person you can see, there's, nobody's going to believe you love a God you can't see. Nobody's going to buy that. Doesn't make sense. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Perfection. By this, love is perfected. I have a, I have a thing with perfection. Because I'm a, I, I teach writing to high school students. And my students are addicted to perfection. Uh, and that's because they think writing is math. I don't know where they got this idea, but they really like math. You know why they like math? Because there's one single correct answer to the question. There's one single correct answer. They love it. I ask them, I say, would you rather write a paper for me or do 200 math questions? They're like, easy, 200 math questions. Because you see, Theoretically, theoretically, all things being equal, they can all take that same two, those same 200 questions, and if they know how to do the problems and they're careful, guess what? They can all score a perfect score, can't they? And it's all the same, the uniformity of it. They just love it. It keeps them warm at night. See, I got a degree in literature where I, we sat around and we argued over the meaning of texts. And somebody said, well, I think this text is talking about that. I'm like, ah, but did you look at stanza four? Ah, hold on. I think the author's doing something different over here. And they hate it because they're scared to death and they don't want to take a risk. That's the thing. I tell them, your problem is that you're terrified to make an assertion and defend it in my paper. 
So you say safe things. You give me plot summary. I read the book. Don't summarize the plot. Say something. And then they get the paper. And let's say they wrote a really good paper. I don't tend to give out 100s, and it makes them nuts. They're like, Mr. Brian, you didn't, I didn't get a 100. And I said, what's a 100? It means perfection, right? Do you think when I read your paper, I picked up the phone and I was like, yes, I need to speak to uh, Random House Books? We got a keeper here. Like, there's not, like, this, I've never read anything like it. Yeah, 10th grader. It's crazy. Yeah, send someone now before it's, someone else scoops this up. This, this is amazing. I mean, Shakespeare's reborn. I said, do you think you wrote perfection? I said, I gave you a 98. In, in the averages, it's not going to matter. But I'd like to remind you, you didn't write something perfect, because if I tell you you wrote something perfect, guess what? You'll get lazy and stupid. So keep working. Write harder. Give me more. So I don't see a lot of perfection in my world. I don't see a lot of perfection. So to hear that I could have some, sign me up. I'd like some of that. Love is perfected with us by this. By what? What's the this? Oh, by knowing, believing, and abiding. By knowing, believing, and abiding, love is perfected. And it's an ongoing thing. It isn't all at once. Would it be great? Again, flick the switch. I'm perfect. But at least I'm on the path to perfection. This is how love gets perfected. And then look at what it produces so that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence in the day of judgment. Verse 18, there's no fear in love. He expands on this idea of confidence. There's no fear in love. I want you to stop and think, just, just wait a sec. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. So not only is there not fear, but if fear finds, if love finds fear, it gets rid of it. It ejects it. It sends it on its merry way. Because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. Anybody afraid of punishment? Anybody think God wants to punish you? So, <clears throat> story time with Uncle Phil. When I was four years old, in Metropolitan Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, back in 1976, about four years old, I grew up in church. I, I went to church since I was a zygote. My dad was a pastor. I, my earliest memories are in church. Everything I remember. I remember a few things from my home in Oklahoma in the first five years, but mostly I remember things in church. We were there all the time. It was the 70s, Baptist church. Church was open a lot. And we were there. And I went to all the things, right? I went to my little children's church, my Sunday school, the whole bit. Children's choir. That's probably where I learned that song. I learned all the things. You know, one of my earliest memories is of learning about God, my earliest sort of theological training. That somehow this God who really loves me would be fine sending me to hell forever. 
I remember this at age four. But somehow, in my four-year-old brain, I talk about holding tension. I was supposed to go, God loves you. But if you die tonight, he might just send you to hell for eternity to burn. Now, I'm 50 and have a seminary degree, and I still struggle with that one. But at four, they were laying that on me. And and frankly, I've been a little screwed up by it my entire life. Because I've been walking around with anything but perfect love. Because what I've had is a fear of punishment. Because the earliest, most foundational truth I was told about God is he would have no problem at all burning me in hell forever. No problem. And I understand all of the logic around hell. I'm not here to tell you hell doesn't or doesn't exist. That's not, my, that's not the point here. The point is, sometimes the first things you lay on people are hard to get rid of. What's the first thing you say to people when you talk about God? What's the first thing? Actually, ask yourself a good question. Do this exercise sometime. Go read the Gospels and see what Jesus' first thing he says to people is. Go check it out. You might be shocked. You might be shocked. We like to get kind of wound up about Old Testament prophets. I think a lot of us think of ourselves as Old Testament prophets. And that God sent us to Richardson to say, Night cometh! Lo, 40 days and God's going to destroy Richardson. If you genuinely believe God has called you to be an OT prophet to Richardson, go crazy. But I'm going to step a little away from you and make sure I'm properly grounded. Because last time I checked, I'm not living in a theocracy that God is trying to protect. I'm probably, if anything, living in Babylon. And I'm light and salt and a witness to who... I'm, I'm confessing who Jesus is and loving people to try to draw them in. What's your approach to people? Do you tell people about the perfect love that casts out fear? Is that what you tell people about? If you don't, maybe it's because that's not the thing driving your own faith. Maybe there's fear inside of you. And you're so scared and so threatened by the concept of sin. But the last time I checked, Jesus handled that. I feel pretty confident he has that one in the bag. And I'm not trying to minimize sin or say we shouldn't talk about it. But I'll tell you what. When you lead with fear and terror, let me be the first to tell you, it's really hard to unpack that. It's like putting something, you ever had to pack up your house and invariably that the first thing you need later is the last thing, the first thing you put in the box so there's 27,000 things on top of it. You're like, where did we put that spatula? There's a remote control, sweaters, Christmas decorations, books. You're pulling everything out, wonderful things and down below is that. Down below everything for me is God would have no problem sending you to hell. And it's marked me for my life. It's marked me for my life. And I'm trying to come out from under that and realize, oh yeah, I think I can have confidence on the day of judgment. Why? Because I'm good? Am I good? John, quiet. 
Easy. It's rhetorical. No, I'm not good. But that isn't what John said, because he said, you know how I know? Because what? What did he say? Flip back again. Look at the earlier chunk. He says, and this is love, not that we loved God, verse 10, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the reason I have no fear at this existential moment, it'll creep back, is because I'm not actually looking at myself as being worthy of any of this. <laughs> it's so freeing. And what's funny is it doesn't make me want to go sin more. I think people are afraid of that. Well, if we don't hammer people with repentance and sin, they're going to go out and go crazy. You know what actually is funny? When you hammer me with how much God loves me, you know what I actually want to do? I want to abide more. I want to get closer to him. I don't, want to, I don't want to become a libertine. I want to get closer. I'm sure I've used this example before. In my class, teacher, you ever heard the it, teachers told, used to be told, you know, don't smile till Christmas. You know that old chestnut? Don't smile till Christmas. You know, you got to get in there and mm, lay down the law with those urchins. I never understood that. And I know people who start their classes with, this class is going to be really hard. You better show up with your A game, pay attention, don't screw around, bring your supplies, listen up, because if you don't, you're going to get to my exam in December and you're going to be in a world of hurt. Now, that's true. And, and what's funny is that fear, guess what it'll do? Will it motivate some people? When I was four and they said, if you die tonight, you could go to hell, do you know what I wanted to do as fast as possible? Where do I sign up? The problem is, is fear-based motivation, you know what it does? It colors everything related to that. So when I tell a kid, you better shape up in my class because you're going to die on the exam if you don't, what happens is he may study hard, but the whole while he's thinking, I hate that guy. And I hate English. But I instead decide to go to my students and I say, look, I get it. I was in high school. I get it. We're the last thing you study at night. You do your math that you love so much. And then after you've finished all your other homework, you sit down with, with Macbeth. You go, I'm going to do a little reading here. You know, at least the book is near you while you're on TikTok. You walk into my class the next day, you go, Mr. Bryant, I, I swear I read last night, but I did not understand a thing. I bet that's true. Partially. The second half. But I tell my students, look, I get it. You're not going to probably be in love with Shakespeare, and I don't know that you're going to walk out of here in love with Shakespeare, but I want you to know I am deeply in love with Shakespeare. And I think if you take a close look at it, you're going to see some really cool stuff. I think you're going to see things that are amazing. You know what happens at the end of the year? I have kids who say, you know, Mr. Brian, I thought I was going to hate this, but it's pretty good. I could at least give the same benefit to my Savior that I give to Shakespeare, couldn't I? You, you ought to get to know him. 
He loves you. And he gives you a perfect love that casts out fear. Everybody likes to point to verses and passages where he talks about sin. Well, the woman at the well, he mentioned the the wives and the husbands. After he said what? I got water I can give you. You'll never thirst again. And this was after he crossed a social boundary and talked to a woman, which right off the bat put him in a different category than every other person she'd met. Again, I'm not saying we don't talk about the fact that there's sin and judgment in the world. John does. He says, but you can have confidence on the day of judgment. Because if you make your priority knowing and believing and abiding, guess what takes care of itself? Punishment's gone. Judgment's gone. Poof. And instead what you have is perfection. What are you pitching to people? What's your faith based on? Is it based on a scary God who's out to get you? Or do you have a God that says, hey, I love you no matter what. I sent my son to be the substitute for your sin. And I sent my spirit and revealed myself and we can abide one in another. I'm not a distant God far off. I'm the God who inhabits your very life. There's a commercials during the um, Super Bowl. I'm told. I didn't see it. I know I look very athletic, but I don't watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> but I've been fascinated by this He Gets Us campaign. Maybe you've heard about it. He Gets Us. I've been reading a lot of stuff in the news about it. It's really interesting. It's interesting to hear people talk about it. But what's funny, the funniest part of the whole thing is that in theory, if you look at it, it's an advertisement for Jesus. He gets us. It's like, don't worry, he's really a nice guy. But what's crazy is if you go read all of the research and the surveys and the statistics that are done, people actually don't dislike Jesus. You know what they dislike? (laughs) You and me. (laughs) People, when surveyed, they're like, no, I think Jesus from the Bible is pretty great. It's his followers that terrify me. So we spent $20 million to tell people something they already knew, which is Jesus likes them. They plan to spend a billion total. John finishes up by repeating what he's already said earlier. We love because he first loved us. That's back to verses uh, 9 through 11. And then you see in verses 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And this commandment we have, the one who loves God should love his brother. Again, just a rehash of 7 and 8. The brand new sticky parts right there in the middle about perfect love, casting out fear. When you read the scriptures, what do you do? Here's my question. When you read the Bible, do you see it internally? Like, do you read it and go, oh man, that applies to me? Or do you look around and go, oh man, that applies to John? 
You, you remember the, the, the parable about the tax collector who goes to the wall and he's like, oh Lord, forgive me, I'm a terrible, horrible man, not, you know, wretched sinner. And then the, the Pharisee goes, thank you Lord that I'm not like that guy. Or how about Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to his house and the woman comes in and she's crying and washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And, and the word Luke uses says, like, it's an ugly cry. It, she's making a scene. And Simon reasons in his heart, well, if he knew what kind of woman that was. You notice how unique? The villains are all looking outward. Well, what's the tax collector in the story doing? He's looking at himself in relation to God. What's the woman on the ground with Jesus thinking about? Is she thinking about how she looks to anybody else? Or is she thinking about how she relates to God? What's she thinking about? When you come to the scripture and you read this, if you're immediately going, that's right. I'm afraid you're on the villain side of this equation. But when I read this, I want to, I want to drop to my knees and I want to say, God, <laughs> let me abide in love. Let me abide in you and love and confess who you are. Don't, don't let me be the one not loving. Don't let me be the one getting it wrong. Don't let me be the one making you look bad. Don't let me add fear and punishment and judgment where you want to take it away. Where do you land? When you read, do you read for yourself or someone else? When you look at your faith, is it about fear or abiding? And what are we producing for the world around us? Let's pray. Father, I do ask that what I just said. God, I, 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 you're not going to ever ask me about anybody other than Phil Bryan. So I don't want to get hung up on somebody else's sins. I don't want to get hung up on being a fruit inspector. Father, you're, this is between you and me. And so, Father, I ask that you would work in my heart to make me one who approaches you with the confidence of knowing that you love me and that my sufficiency is in your sacrifice, not in myself. And God, let that draw me ever closer to you, abiding in you. And God, let the natural outflow of abiding in the Savior produce love for everybody. Love God, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. Father, let us draw people to you because you are a good God. You are a winsome God. You are a caring Father who writes beloved little children to us in this letter. Father, we are beloved of you. Thank you for loving us. Help us to reflect that love everywhere we go. Let us never compromise on the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And that we do have a sin problem that he fixed, but it's a sin problem he fixes. And he releases us. Father, give us some perspective here and let it produce grace everywhere we go. Because we are recipients of your grace. And for that, we thank you and praise you in your son's precious name. Amen. Let us stand together.